I am getting a little too used to this mask. It's not a good thing. Because before we had to wear these, we used to wear these for different reasons. So I'm starting to appreciate people's eyes. Beautiful eyes y'all have. Starting to recognize people by their eyes. It's getting ridiculous. All right, let's, uh, let's pray and then we'll jump in. Father, thank you for, once again, another opportunity and the responsibility on my part to be able to communicate your word to sons and daughters whom you died on the cross to save. As we get into this particular verses in Romans 8, we'll see clearly your love for for people. Lord, these are familiar words and sometimes they group together in ways that sound confusing because we don't talk in the language. Sometimes the Bible explains things in, so I pray that you would give me grace to to pull away some of the enigmatic or some of the mystery of the words or phraseology to bring it down to plain English so that we can appreciate the reality of what was done for us. Lord, you also repeat things that you've already said in your word. And I pray that no one would be dulled by the repetition, but only further encouraged. For if you, God, decided to communicate something to us again and again, then you, God, have decided that it is important for us to know it and not remember. So far be it from us to to be so familiar with your word that it somehow loses effect. This morning, Father, I pray that you would allow it to gain, gain leverage in the hearts and minds of your sons and daughters and use me as weak and as Foolish as I am to communicate a truth that is strong. And may they hear a much better sermon from your spirit to their heart than I'm able to preach from my mouth to their ears. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are going to be looking at Romans 8. The last time we were here, I was making a point, a case about who Paul was talking about. In Romans 7. And so I connected it to Romans 8 because of the first word in Romans 8 1, which is the word therefore. Well, today we're not going to look at Romans 8 connected to Romans 7 as much as we're going to look at it as a standalone passage. And we're going to we're doing a review. So remember, we're doing review until we get back to Romans 9. And once we get there, then we'll go through that passage the way I normally would, a couple verses at a time. So if you're new today or haven't been following this series, it's going to be more, we'll be coming at this at about 7,000 feet. So not on the ground where we're looking at every word and what everything means, but we're not going to be so high up that we, we shoot too broadly. We'll zoom in where appropriate to make some connections, but we're not going to hit everything Because I've already taught Romans 8. You can go back on the website and listen to the specific sermons if you want. Today's today's perspective is to give us a broader view of what we've already heard and a reminder of things that we, for most of us, already believe. So let's begin with reading 
The first four verses of Romans 8. I'm reading from the CSB translations, and I quote, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. When the law, what the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. In order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So this verse, verse one, this section of scripture begins with a kingdom reality. It's a kingdom reality that says, therefore, covering what he said before. There's no condemnation. For those in Christ Jesus, he's not talking about an emotional feeling like when you sin and you feel bad and you feel like God doesn't love you and you feel condemned. He's not saying there's no sad feelings that he's talking about here. He's not talking about emotional. He's talking about something judicial. He's talking about the opposite of justification. You see, biblically, justification means you are declared righteous, not guilty before God. Everyone in this room, whether you believe in Jesus or not, has sinned enough that when you stand before God, God can rightly say, I do not know you and you will be punished for all eternity because of the sins that you committed. But there will be some of us, Lord willing, all of us, that will be welcomed into eternity, into heaven with God and the rest of the believers because he will declare us not guilty. Not because you haven't done it, but because someone else has taken the punishment on your behalf. So that's, the, that's what he's talking about. There's no condemnation. There's no, you're guilty. Condemned in the Bible means you're guilty. When you stand before God, you are guilty. The scariest words in scripture are, depart from me, I never knew you. There will be no my bad in that moment. Condemnation is the opposite of justification. So the point that he's making is, therefore, there is no condemnation if you're in Christ Jesus. So coming off of Romans 7, if he is a believer confessing his sin and his struggle with sin, which he's not, but if he is, the point still stands. There's no condemnation for you, even though you struggle with sin. If he's not a Christian and he's an unregenerate Jew who has yet to believe in Jesus, the point still stands. Because there's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. If he's what I think, making a hypothetical point to prove that there's no condemnation in Jesus in contrasting the law, then the point stands. There's still no condemnation, no declared guilty for those who are in fact, in action and attitude guilty for their sin. No punishment for you. And he explains why in verse two. Because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. It says when Jesus came, Jesus did what you and I couldn't do. 
And he goes on to say this in verse three. What the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. Huh? Who talks like this? If someone walked up to you and said this, you would be like, oh, I'm sorry, I don't speak that. It can be confusing. Let's break down what he's saying. Is that the law, when, he, when Paul talks about the law, unless he attaches of Christ, he's talking about the Old Testament. All the laws in the Old Testament that the Jews had to obey perfectly. That's called the Mosaic law, or the law of Moses. So when he says the law, he's saying all the laws for us most popularly known as the Ten Commandments, but it's more than the Ten Commandments. But he's saying all the laws that come with being in Moses, believing in Moses in the Old Testament before Jesus, that law could not do what it was supposed to do. Because when the Ten Commandments came forth, people finally realized, oh, this is what I, this is what that means. This is what I do. You see, until you know something is wrong, you'll just do it. And then when you find out, no, you can't do that. I'll never forget when my kids, I got three boys and one of them, one of my boys, man, he just liked looking at the socket. And he would, and he would take a metal knife and he'd be, you know, and if you weren't paying attention, this didn't happen a lot. Make sure of that. And not just because sometimes this would be, I mean, for those of you who are parents of small kids, sometimes you forget to childproof the room. And sometimes your kids get shocked. They know how to pluck that thing off. Smooth. Move a little bit, check and see if mom and dad are looking. Move it a little bit more, and that pops off. And you don't know because you're just doing what you normally do. And they can put anything in that socket, and then their life could be changed forever, including yours. My son one time was walking to it with his knife, and I don't even know if he had the right position to put it in the thing, but I wasn't going to wait to find out. So I got to him. No, 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 no. No, son. I tried to explain. He was laughing at first because he's just a goofball. And so I was laughing. Then I realized if he, he thinks I'm being funny. So I was like, no. So then he tried to do it again. I had to tighten his leg up, you know, just pluck him. So he knew, don't do that. That hurts. And he said, hurts. Now he was talking about the pluck. I was talking about what will happen if he puts that knife in that socket. You see, prior to that, he didn't know not to do that. But once the law came, you can't do that. Then he was now wanting to do it to see what would happen. You ever seen those cartoons or TV shows when it says, don't press this button? And it's like, man, I wonder what happens if I press this button. It's like, don't press the button. It's like, man, I really want to press this button. Or when someone says, hey, look, don't look behind you. The first thing you want to do is look, right? Like, why did you say don't look behind me? Why can't I look? Well, that's what the law does. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't do this. And now because what you want to do. If just for the simple fact, because you're told you're not supposed to do it. So when he talks about the law, he's talking about the law was in, incapable of doing what it was intended to do, which was to keep people from sinning because our sinful flesh wants to do what the law says don't do. So because that's a reality, he says Jesus came and obeyed the law. He didn't disobey all of the laws that God laid out for humanity. 
He obeyed them perfectly. Now, we know this. If you're a member of this church, you know this. But can we stop for a moment and appreciate the reality of what we theologically call the incarnation? Where God, the creator of all things, the scripture tells us in Hebrews 1 and in John 1 that everything was created through Jesus Christ, that he is the exact imprint the exact nature of the father and that all things are created through Jesus. He created every single thing, every, every molecule, every enzyme, everything in our bodies, everything that we are. He created all of these things because he's that perfect and that distant. And that same God decided that in order to save us, he was going to become one of us, but not just descend from heaven as an adult, teach people and then we believe in them like some other mythologies. No, he becomes a baby. That means the God who created everything decided that I'm going to have to learn how to walk, talk, be potty trained. Jesus had to be potty trained. See, people don't like to talk like that. They think like, listen, me and my kids over Easter weekend, we had this crazy conversation. We were talking about Jesus being a real human being. And you know the realization that a father and his three sons came to? If Jesus was really a human being, is that he farted. That's not sinful. Jesus said in Matthew 15, whatever goes into the mouth comes out of the body. That's gases and solids. He was a real human being. I imagine him being with the disciples and letting one go. And they'd be like, Rabbi. <laughs> Lord, please don't strike me down. I believe this isn't wrong. I'm, not, I'm allowed to say this. He was a real human being. He chose out of all the ways that he could have allowed salvation to come. He became one of us. He was a toddler. He grew up. He learned. He had to learn how to think. The God who created everything became like his creation just so that he could save them from the very wrath. And how does he do it? By taking his own wrath upon himself. So when people struggle and say, man, why would God let this happen? We should also ask, why did God allow himself to suffer so that we wouldn't? The God who created everything chose to suffer. Excruciating physical pain, but then a pain that was much deeper than any of us will ever experience who are in Christ. There was a book I read years ago called When God Weeps by a lady named Joni Erickson Tata. I want to read a portion of her book as she is trying to describe the agonizing moment on the cross. I want you to listen for a moment. This is just a description. It cannot, it pales in comparison to what Jesus really experienced. But just listen for a moment as I read this excerpt from her. Here she says, the face 
that Moses begged to see, was forbidden to see, was slapped bloody. The thorns that God had sent to curse the earth's rebellion now twisted around his brow. On your back with you, one raises a mallet to sink the spike. But the soldier's heart must continue pumping as he readies the prisoner's wrist. Someone must sustain the soldier's life minute by minute, for no man has this power on his own. Who, supp who supplies breath to his lungs? Who gives energy to his cells? Who holds his molecules together? Only by the sun do all things hold together. Colossians 1.17. The victim wills that the soldier live on. He grants the warrior continued existence. The man swings. As the man swings, the son recalls how he and the father first designed the medial nerve of the human forearm. The sensations it would be capable of. The design proves flawless. The nerve performs exquisitely. Up you go. They lift the cross. God is on display in his underwear. And can scarcely breathe. But these pains are a mere warm up to the other and growing dread. He begins to feel a foreign sensation somewhere during this day. An unearthly foul odor begins to waft, not around his nose, but his heart. He feels dirty. Human wickedness starts to crawl upon this spotless being, the living excrement from our souls. The apple of the father's eye turns brown with rot. His father, he must face his father like this. From heaven, the father now rouses himself like a lion disturbed, shakes his mane and roars against the shriveling remnant of a man hanging on a cross. Never has the son seen the father look at him so. Never felt even the least of his hot breath. But the roar shakes the unseen world and darkness fills the visible sky. The son does not recognize these eyes. Son of man, why have you behaved so? You have cheated, lusted, stolen, gossiped, murdered, envied, hated, lied. You have cursed, robbed, overspent, overeaten, fornicated, disobeyed, embezzled, and blasphemed. Or all the duties you have shirked, the children you have abandoned. Who has ever ignored the poor, so played the coward, so belittled my name? Have you ever held a razor tongue? What a, a self-righteous, pitiful drunk you who molest young boys, peddle killer drugs, travel in cliques and mock your parents. Who gave you the boldness to rig elections, foment revolutions, torture animals and worship demons? Does the list ever end? Splitting families, raping virgins, acting smugly, playing the pimp, buying politicians, practicing extortion, filming pornography, accepting bribes. You have burned down buildings, perfected terrorist tactics, founded false religions, traded in slaves, relishing each morsel and bragging about it all the time. I hate and loathe these things in you. Disgust for everything about you consumes me. Can you not feel my wrath? Of course, the son is innocent. He is blamelessness itself. The father knows this. But the divine pair have an agreement. And the unthinkable must now take place. Jesus will be treated as if personally responsible for every sin ever committed. The father watches as his heart's treasure, the mirror image of himself, sinks, drowning in a raw liquid sin. Jehovah's stored rage against humankind from every century explodes in a single direction. Father, father, 
Why have you forsaken me? But heaven stops its ears. The sun stares up at the one who cannot, who will not reach down or reply. The Trinity had planned it. The son had endured it. The spirit enabled him. The father rejected the son whom he loved. Jesus, the God man from Nazareth, perished. The father accepted his sacrifice. The rescue was accomplished. Brothers and sisters who believe in Jesus, this is just a depiction of a deeper reality that happened. So when you live, when you think, when you sing, when you don't feel like, remember as best as you can what this description says it felt like for him. And if this isn't enough, then go to the Garden of Gethsemane and see Jesus asking the Father, take this cup from me. Just, ap- just after, hours before saying, for this reason I have come. Should I then ask the Father to save me from this hour? No, for this hour I came. But once that hour was approaching, the reality of standing before the Father and experiencing the full wrath of God for the sins of people who were going to commit those sins again after he forgives them was momentarily unbearable. That Jesus asked for the one thing that could not happen with the Father to take away this wrath. And the Father did not answer. Because if he did, then it would be you and I who would experience it. Can we just for a moment appreciate the incarnation that God became a human being for the sole purpose of glorifying himself by saving us? Verse 3 of Romans 8. What the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. Use the word condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus had human flesh. It's the same flesh that we all have. Many of you know the story of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve didn't receive different flesh after they sinned. It wasn't like their skin changed as far as we know. Jesus has the same flesh that they have. It's not a different flesh. So what does this mean that he condemns sin in the flesh? Well, the flesh isn't sinful in and of itself. Jesus, again, had the same flesh that we did. That's why the nails worked. That's why he could stand before Thomas after the resurrection and say, Thomas, put your fingers in my hands. Put your finger in my side. I was really pierced. I really died. This is really me. The marks were still there. The flesh was real. So how does God condemn sin in the flesh? What it means is Jesus, when it says what that the law could not do, it was weaker than the flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. What he's just saying is simply, Jesus comes in the same flesh that human beings sin in. 
It's all he's saying is Jesus took on the same flesh. The likeness is the similarity, the same flesh. He's making a point to show that Jesus didn't come in a metaphysical form. It wasn't like, you know, we can tend to think that like because he was the son of God, things just didn't affect him. You know how we kind of just think people in the Bible are a little bit more metahuman than we are. No, Jesus was really human. He was fully God and fully man. So he's saying that, no, he didn't come in a a superior flesh. He came in the same flesh that you and I have. And what he did was he obeyed the law perfectly. That's why God condemned sin in the flesh. Because Jesus, in the same flesh, obeyed the law that you and I couldn't. Listen, let's just be honest. We don't even keep our own morals. Sometimes we don't even keep our own consciences. Sometimes our own resolutions without even being about God. Like we don't even keep those. And Jesus comes in the same flesh as you and I did the likeness, the same flesh. And he lives perfectly. So God now condemns him in the flesh. The father declared an end to sin's authority is what it means by he condemns him in the flesh. He said, okay. Now that some flesh has accomplished what I said to obey me perfectly. Now the authority of sin in the flesh is gone. It's gone. It's gone. You know, just just recently, the NCAA tournament, the first time in a long time, there were two number one seeds playing for the national championship. It was Baylor, who's mostly known for football, and Gonzaga. Gonzaga was 30-0, and 0, hadn't lost a game all season. I was cheering for Gonzaga because me and my youngest son, we, watched, we were watching a lot of high school basketball last year because I'm trying to show him you can be him. <laughs> Just, we don't watch the NBA because that's too wonderful for us. But high school players, it's like, listen, you're only about six, seven years from this. Son. You can be this. It's got to practice. So there were two jailers, Jalen Green, who went to the Development League, and then Jalen Suggs, who went to play for Gonzaga. Nice. Nice with it. Crossover handles, all of it. All the stuff that I got, but y'all just don't believe. (laughs) They lose the game. Baylor handled them from the beginning to the end. I was in shock. I'm not even a Gonzaga fan. Pastor Mike and I, we're Georgetown fans. Once Georgetown lost... We didn't have as much desire to watch it until the final game. I was like, oh, I want to see this. Two number one seeds. Gonzaga could go 31-0. Hasn't happened since, I think, what, UCLA? Back when John Wooden was coaching? When Kareem had the sky hook? They lost. I couldn't believe it. They didn't have a perfect season. And you know what? They're not going to be remembered as anything but what could have happened. If it's not perfect, it doesn't count for them. From God, if it's not perfect, it doesn't count. Doesn't count. The law has to be obeyed perfectly. And once Jesus did that, the authority of sin that kept people from obeying the law perfectly is gone. What that means is now 
those who believe in Jesus can actually resist the sins that they may have previously enjoyed at times in their life. The father declared an end to sin's authority because Jesus obeyed him perfectly and then took the penalty for everyone who doesn't obey perfectly. This is why the incarnation is, is a jarring concept. Because it wasn't just God became a human being, came down, taught, did some miracles, and then rose back up. No suffering, no nothing. No, he came down and, and took on the suffering for the sins of the world. The only person who never deserves to suffer. And he said, I'm going to take all of it. So that men and women who are looking at me preach right now will stand before him and be like, come on home. Come on home. He uses this, these two, this, this dichotomy, the law of the spirit of Christ versus the law of sin and death. And he's just describing what they are and what they accomplished. See, the law of sin and death is the law of Moses, because what it accomplishes is just that. You realize I can't do all of this. And sin is present and death comes as a result of sin. Then he contrasts the law of the spirit of Christ. That's simply those who believe in Jesus now follow a different law. Now, I said this a couple of weeks ago that you and I, unless I'm wrong, none of us are Jewish or at least understood and lived among the Jews before Jesus came. So before the common era, before Jesus came, we don't know what it's like to live under the law. But let me tell you, when you sin and you got to take money that you don't have and go buy animals so that they can be killed and the blood sprinkled or your sins are forgiven, it starts to add up. Especially when you sin all the time. When you're walking around and you all of a sudden see a dead body, you're like, oh, man, now I'm too close to it. Now, because of the law, I can't go home for a week. I got to do all these purification rituals and then go show the priest so that I can just be allowed back into my home. There's so many things that would just be overwhelming, that were overwhelming to do that people were just like, man, forget it. And then you got people who, when you go to give them money, they're weighing the, the coins and they're jipping it and making it seem like, ah, oh, this isn't enough. What are you talking about? That's a day's wages, not, not according to this scale. You got to add more. So now you got to go find. So you might go steal something just so you can sell that. To, so what they call robbing Peter to pay Paul. This is exactly what was happening. You steal something just to add to what you had to pay for the sins that you did before you stole it. It's just too much. So Jesus says, you know what? Now just say, Father, forgive me for my sins. And if you sinned against someone, then go say, hey, would you forgive me for my sin? I forgive you and keep it moving. Jesus said, all that is gone. God said, all of that overwhelmed you. You weren't, your flesh was weak. It couldn't, it couldn't obey the law. And so people just didn't do it. So when Jesus comes, listen, a lot of people don't say this. But one of the things that Jesus did by dying on the cross was he helped people's pockets. <laughs> all that money that you had to spend, if you were me, I'd have been broke all the time. 
All the money that people had to spend to pay to get their sins forgiven by sacrificing and giving it to the priest is now money you can save and be generous with. No wonder people were like, hey, what you need? I got you. I don't even got that much, but I don't got to pay. I don't got to buy these goats and these bulls that I had to pay. So I got you. What you need? Don't think for a moment that even on a financial level, the cross accomplishes something beautiful for people. I don't, that's a different message. I don't want to take y'all down that road. What God explains is that there's something important that we have to understand. God, is, God wants us to realize that the very aspects of the faith that we have are all things that we're imitating from people who've lived before us. So like Abraham, right? It says we're children of Abraham, sons and daughters of Abraham in the earthly sense. Why? Because Abraham believed God. He believed the promise. Abraham was an old man. God told him, look, I'm a, you're going to have children. And if you can count all the stars in the sky, that's how many of your descendants will be. And Abraham said, all right, I believe it. I believe it. And God said, because you believed me, that's faith. Faith is simply, I believe it because God said it, even though I don't see it. That's what faith is. I believe it because God said it, even though I don't see it. That's why he said to Thomas, when he said, put your fingers in my hands, and Thomas said, my Lord and my God. He said, Thomas, you believe because you see. Blessed are those who do not see me and believe. Because that's faith. We imitate Abraham by having faith that when we die, our sins are forgiven, and we have faith that who God says we are while we're living is what motivates how we live. Moses. Moses received the law and then got instructions on building the temple for the presence of God to be there. We're like Moses. We get the law. We get the scriptures. We've received the law of the spirit of Christ, but now we're the temple. We're not building a temple, but we're building ourselves up as a temple because we've received the Spirit of God. Jesus willingly choosing to die for sin, and you and I willingly choosing to die to sin. Jesus died for the presence and the penalty of sin, and we died to the power of it. Doesn't mean we don't sin. It just means it's not going to have authority over us the way that it did. And that when we fail, we're going to keep fighting if those who genuinely believe. Let's keep moving. Romans, Romans 8, 5 through 11. For those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit have their minds set on the things of the spirit. Now, the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Now, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin but the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus is from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. Language we don't use. Let's try to simplify it so we can understand what he's actually saying here. 
At the very beginning of this section, Paul is contrasting two different mindsets. One is of the flesh, set on things of the flesh, and then one is on according to the spirit. These two worldviews, these two mindsets are those who are in the kingdom and those who are not. So kingdom-minded in this, in this passage would be equivalent to the mindset on things of the spirit. These are people who, by faith, live in light of the kingdom of God. So people who are living as if the kingdom of God is real, as if it were present, and in anticipation of living in it by sight. So you live according to the rules of the kingdom, right? So we pray on earth as it is in heaven, so we try to live in heaven while we're on earth. And not in some Belinda Carlisle, ooh, heaven is a place on earth. No, I'm not talking about that. We live according to the heavenly laws, to the heavenly perspective where Christ is worshipped, where we do things in honor of Jesus. Max, some of them don't even know who Belinda Carlisle is. They don't even know what's going on right now. I dated myself. That's top 40, 80s music. My wife is hip. She didn't like the song, but she's smiling because she knows the reference. You live by faith that the kingdom of God is real. It's like he said to Thomas, blessed are those who do not see and believe. So we live according to that reality. So what does it mean to have your mind set on the things of the flesh versus the spirit? How do you know the difference? Who's who? Well, it says this in verse five, for those who live according to. Those are three important words. Live according to. Live according to essentially means facing toward that direction in the name of that reality or in relation to that reality. So those who live according to the flesh are people who have their mind set on living in a way that is opposite of what God commands. Living in a way opposite of what God commands. Some of these people are people who profess to believe but continue to sin willfully and presume on the grace of God. Listen, make no mistakes. God knows who really belongs to him. You may be able to fool me, even yourself, but God knows who really is serious about obedience. So don't think for a moment that I'm not, I can't fool, even if I fool y'all or you fool me and Mike, Cool. When you stand before the Lord, he's got the eternal video recorder. And he knows. He knows. He knows who's living according to the flesh. See, we judge people by, look, they come to church. They seem like they, you know, they singing in worship. They playing a band. They doing all that. But we don't see nothing else outside of that, though. We don't know how people think. 
We don't know how many people are sitting in the room and really are just here because they don't got nothing else to do and they just want to be around some people. They're not really here to hear the word of God. They're up there playing on their phone and doing other stuff, looking at their watches, dozing off, as if the one time you hear the word of God, this is the one place you don't play. You play everywhere else. It's the one place where you're dialed in. I don't know who you are, if that's you, what you're thinking, what you're doing, what you're feeling, but the Lord does. But there will be fruit, though. Those who set their mind on the flesh, it will come out. It will be revealed. You can only fake for so long. You know why? Because God created us to be genuine people. Even people who are non-Christians are made in the image of God. And being made in God's image has nothing to do with being a Christian. It has to do with being a human. This is why non-Christians, people who don't still have a desire to see, to do good deeds. Why do you think people are firemen, police officers, doctors, nurses, counselors, go work for Red Cross and go overseas and build hospitals? They don't believe in Jesus at all, but they're made in his image. So they have a desire to do some good things. Don't believe the lie that, oh, everybody who does good things is, uh, no, 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 no. There's a lot of people who believe in Jesus, who, who don't believe in Jesus, that do good things. But what do you live according to? What do you do in the name of? You've heard me say this before. But the only thing, the main things that makes our obedience different from like a Muslim. I mean, Jehovah's Witness, they go up and down and they knock on doors and they, they share the gospel more than most of us. Muslims pray five times a day. That's probably more than most of us. They're, 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 they're Buddhists meditate. I don't know on what, but they meditate. There's a lot of religious activity. What makes Christians different is not just what you do, but why you do it. You see, the reason why a husband who's been faithful to his wife loves his children has a good relationship, doesn't steal, doesn't lie, doesn't do a lot of these sins that you think, oh man, look, the reason why that person outside of Christ to God is not good enough because it's like obeying the Mosaic law. It has to be perfect. It's still not perfect. And the one aspect that is almost rarely spoken of that Christ did was he also obeyed God with a perfect motive. He said, I always do what pleases the Father. He told the disciples in John 4, when he was talking to the woman at the well, when he was hungry, he said, my food is to do the will of the Father. See, Jesus' motive for glorifying God was as important as his action. And what God, what the Spirit gives us, listen, a lot of the, a, a lot of the moral obedience, a lot of people do that. A lot of the moral obedience that's in the Bible is in a lot of religious practices. Let me tell you something. Satan, listen, if, if, if Christianity is the only true religion, which I believe it is, I believe it's the one from God, salvation is found in no other name. I, I believe that to be true. If that's the case, then all these other religions with them, why do they have this morality? If all these other religions are not truly from God, isn't it interesting that they all obey, they have levels of morality? I mean, some of them say, look, you got to live a certain way. And if you don't, you'll be reincarnated and try again. But depending on how you live, you might come back a, a crocodile next time. 
which you definitely ain't going to be a good person if you come back as a crocodile. Them things are apex predators, man. You, they just attack all the time. All these religions have morality in their voluntary purpose is satanic. So what does that mean? It means that the devil doesn't have a problem with morality. He has a problem with motivated by Christ morality. That's what he has a problem with. He doesn't mind if people are good. We tend to think, oh, he would want the world to be in chaos and all. No. Satan, if that's the case, then there would be no only one religion. No, he doesn't mind people doing good works. Just don't do them because you want to honor Jesus Christ. Don't do them because you believe in Jesus. That's what bothers him. And that's what makes us different. We live according to the spirit of Christ because we want to honor him with what we do. And because we believe in Jesus and he was perfect, God says, I'm going to give you the perfect righteousness of him. So I'm, that's going to go to your credit. Like you've heard me say before. If you played on any Chicago Bulls team that Michael Jordan was on, you were the last player on the bench, you got a ring, just like he did. Why? Because you were on the team. There were some people we've never heard of. They made minimal NBA money. They were practice dummies. That's it. And they were on that weedy box when the Chicago Bulls won. They're on the weedy box when, when LeBron and them win. You don't even know who that person is, but he's sitting there smiling. Fresh, fresh cut. Actually, nowadays, dudes don't even care no more about that. But he's on the Wheaties box. Dead. When they go to the White House to meet the president, he's dead. But he didn't play one second in the NBA Finals. He was on the bench. But he has a ring because he was on the team. If you're a Christian, you get what Jesus gets because you're on the team. Not because you did anything to earn the place but because you were on the team, Jesus is the Jordan and the LeBron. We're on his team. So we get some of the things that he gets. This is what makes Christians different. The only thing. Your morality is probably, or many of ours, if we were just judging morality, other religions probably do their things more faithfully than us. There are days I pray once. Muslims pray five times a day and have a problem if they don't. But that Muslim is not going to make it unless he believes in Jesus because it's just another Mosaic law. You can't obey it perfectly. It's rules and it's by your will for your glory, not his. Those who live according to the flesh have their mind set on things of the flesh. Some of the things of the flesh can be listed in passages like, like Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Here's some things of the flesh. This is this. Now, the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatreds, Strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions. This is all stuff you see on Twitter every day. This is my Twitter feed right now, he's described. Envy, drunkenness, carousing, 
and anything similar. I'm warning you about these things, as I warned you before, that those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The mindset on the flesh will live according to values like that. The minds that are committed to these kinds of attitudes and actions are not people that care about God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, this isn't just struggling with sin. This is agreeing with it. There's a difference. When the Bible talks about those who practice, he's talking about people. When you practice, that's a choice. You go to practice. All them people who went in ring, they went to practice. Alan Iverson's the only one that had a problem with practice. All right, all these people went to practice. People who practice. People who do these things practice. No conviction, no nothing. And some people do them, and as long as other people don't find out, they feel safe. Man, you're going to stand before God, and he's going to let you know you don't have the code for the safe. That safety net was weak. The mindset on the flesh will live according to these values. Here's what he says, and here's what, here's what Jesus says in Luke 6. He says this. Verse 43 through 45. Here's what he says. A good tree doesn't bear bad fruit, doesn't produce bad fruit. On the other hand, a bad tree doesn't produce good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. Figs aren't gathered from thorn bushes and grapes picked from a bramble bush. In other words, you don't go to an apple tree and you're going to find plums. Whatever's hanging from that tree is in the seed. That was what was planted. That's what he's saying. Whatever you, that's what was planted. So when you go pick strawberries, you won't go there and be like, why is this squash? Because you had the squash farm. You, you didn't, your map quest was wrong. A good person produces good out of the good stored up in his heart. An evil person produces evil out of the evil stored up in his heart. For his mouth speaks from the overflow of his heart. You know what Jesus is saying? If you want to really evaluate how you're doing, just look at how you act. It's not complicated. Like we make it complicated because we don't want to really be honest. We know people that, you know, you ever ask somebody, hey, man, you think they were saved? I don't know, man. I mean, it's like they knew them. Well, I mean, they made a profession of faith, but I, I don't know. I didn't. And it, good, that's just a person saying, look, man, I ain't see fruit, but I don't want to say nobody went to hell for real. I don't want to just say that. And that's fine. Don't say that. But don't pretend like it's difficult. God is saying, look, if you want to evaluate how you're really doing, what's the fruit that comes out? What is your fruit? And if you can't see it, you can ask someone close to you. What's the fruit of your life? How, how, I mean, can you spend a lot of time without praying or reading or doing anything to obey God? Can you go long periods of time not even thinking about confessing sin and to God and to others? Do you really, are you really okay with like getting away with sins and because nobody else saw you? Like, do you, I mean, if you, all that type of stuff, like you can just look at that and be like, that's, Listen, if you were godly and wanted to glorify God, that's not the fruit that comes out. Jesus is saying, look, what's in the heart is what comes out. If you want to evaluate your maturity, just look at the fruit that comes out. 
There's no, this isn't a trick question. Just what's the fruit that comes out of your life? You gossiped a lot, critical, judgmental. What's the fruit that comes out? Complaining, fits of rage. You know, my, my sons play Fortnite. And, and, and <laughs> my son has this thing they call raging. And so he'll be playing Fortnite and he'll just be like, man, come on. I'll be like, hey. What you doing? Well, I'll be there like, man, what you? I said, look, man, don't get mad, get better, son. As I tell him, Mick, don't get mad, get better. I said, look, the dude killed you. You killed him. You was dancing a minute ago. You got, you got, hey, get better, man. Don't get mad, get better. And then he'd be like, all right, probably. Then he'd play again, man. And I'd be like, all right, son, if you do it again, you can't play. And there are times I'm like, you know what? That's it. That's it. Turn it off. He's all looking at me like, I'm like this, man, turn it off. Turn it off. That's it. You can't handle it, son. You can't handle it. And I tell him, son, it's a game. I get it. But that doesn't honor the Lord, man. You're too emotional about it. And I love the spirit of competition he has it, him. I like it. He gets it from his dad. But this is another thing to be like, man. I'm, and I said, what are you doing? So I'm raging right now. I said, nah, man, we ain't raging, man. We can't rage right here, man. <laughs> now, you know, why, you know why I'm concerned about it? Not so much because of the game. Because it'll become a part of who he is, and then he'll start raging at his mom. Then he's going to start raging at his dad. And then that's when them phrases, like my mom used to say, was, I brought you in this world, I can take you out. That's when them phrases start to come on the tip of your tongue. You see, I need to nip that in the bud now, because that raging is not going to stay in one place. Sin travels. Sin travels. It ain't going to just be, all, I only do this at the game. It's going to be talking back to your mom. It's going to be talking back to your dad, talking back to your teachers, talking back to police, talking back to whoever. And some rages don't have the same grace as your dad does. Some people are not going to respond to that the same way. I tell my son, son, look at what's coming out. Look at what's coming out. When Poppy rages, I got to go back and humble myself and say, guys, please forgive me. And I'm honest. Listen, I didn't honor the Lord. Here's what I did. I didn't honor the Lord, and I didn't honor, and I didn't honor you guys by doing that, or I didn't honor your mom or whatever. My kids graciously forgive you, Poppy. I forgive them. That's what we do. But we're not trying to live according to that. What's the fruit that's coming out of your life? Jesus said, look, you're known by your fruit. What's the mindset? What's really on your mind? Now, again, we're not talking about struggling with. We're talking about practicing. James tells us we all stumble in many ways. We're talking about practice right now. Alan Iverson again. It says those who live according to the spirit have their minds set on other things, have their minds set on God. Well, what does living according to the spirit look like? Go back to Galatians 5. Here's what it looks like. But the fruit of the spirit and the fruit are the results. Fruit is just results. I'm not talking about baskets, eating food. <laughs> talking about results. 
the fruit of the spirit is not like strawberry, lemon. You can't go to 7-Eleven and get the fruit of the spirit. It's the results that come out of. It's the attitudes and actions that come out of people who are trying to honor the Lord. And those are the people that have the spirit in them. And here's what it looks like. Not perfectly, but definitely identifiable. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the spirit, let us also keep in step with the spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. You see, these are all things that the fruit of the Spirit is, is there. Now, none of us is going to have these perfectly. But do you have them at all? Are these, do these come out? Are these identifiable? I'm not talking about people who don't know you. There are people that hear me, on, that hear me teach. They hear me on my podcast. They hear me through my music. And they think they know me. That doesn't mean you know me. People see me preaching, I'm all intense, and they think I'm always this way. Nah, meet me in the counseling room, and I'm gentle. Ask people, there's people in this room who sat in front of me. I'm gentle. We talk, we laugh. I'm intense because I'm in the moment. I'm preaching. You don't know me because you see me preaching this way. You don't know me. You just know an aspect of who I am. You don't know me because you heard my album. You don't know me because you heard the podcast. You know what I want you to see publicly. But there is a side of everyone that we don't see. Who is that? Who is that person? That's the person God sees. God is not impressed by me teaching a message or cracking a joke or anyone thinking that I like this sermon. What does that even mean? I mean, I'm grateful for the encouragement, but that's not impressive at all, especially when God gives the gifts to communicate. God's not impressed. I think Tim is amazing, but God's not impressed by that. He gave Tim the ability to do it, even if he practiced to do it for it. He's not impressed by any of us, for real. He's impressed by Jesus and those who believe in Jesus, who try to do things because they want to honor Jesus. That's impressive. Because he said to Thomas, those who don't see and believe. That's the people. What's on your mindset? Are you motivated, motivated to obey Christ? Do you do things exclusively because you want to just honor the Lord? Those are the people who are living according to the spirit, the law of the spirit of Christ. It is not rocket science. We make it rocket science because we don't want to be honest. Listen, there's going to be some bad fruit on all of our branches. Just go through and graciously just clip them off. Start clipping it off. And you know how you clip it off? Acknowledge it. Acknowledge it. If you got kids, don't think that because they're kids, you can just talk to them any old kind of way. They're going to remember that. You know what I never want my kids, listen, I, I can't, my, I think my kids believe in Jesus. We pray, we do. but I can't, I don't know how they're going to be 10 years from now. Here's what I don't want them to say. God forbid, if my kids don't believe in Jesus, I don't want them to say because, well, 
my dad was one way at church and one way at home. If you reject the Lord, it's not going to be because I was a hypocrite. Uh-uh. Doesn't mean I ain't going to have some failings, but I try to acknowledge those when they come out. I let my sons know all the time. I say, listen, I know your dad's a pastor, but hey, man, I need the Lord too. I need, to, I need, to, I need the Lord too. This is why I'm not, you know, I say all that to them. I don't, want them to, I, don't want, I don't want to be their scapegoat. And I also don't want to be yours. Even if me or Mike, God forbid, were to fall away, if any of you do, that means your confidence was in us more than in God. If you truly believe, then you're going to go if everybody else says no. Because your mind is, is set on the things of the spirit. This is important because we're living in a culture of peer pressure. Peer pressure is at an all-time high right now. You will get canceled for the dumbest thing. People are afraid of that. Man, I don't want to get my Facebook shut down. I don't want to get my... You know, I don't wanna... And I get it. None of us do. We enjoy those functions. But we have to live according to the law of the Spirit of Christ. This is what Jesus died on the cross for. This is why Joni Erickson Tata, who wrote that piece, wrote it the way she wrote it so that we could hear that and be affected by that reality. And it pales in comparison to the real reality. But at least gives us a depiction, something that we can grab our hooks on and think, wow. It was like that and worse. Those who have their mind set on the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh have their mind set on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit have their mind set on the things of the spirit. Now the mindset of the flesh is death. But the mindset of the spirit is life and peace. We'll pick up right here next Sunday.